Hello there! This show contains material which a truly free society would neither fear nor suppress. The language and concepts contained herein will not cause eternal torment in the place where the guy with the horns and pointed stick conducts his business. Hi, everyone. Hello, dear. Hello, dear. Hello, dear. Hi, dear. Ho, dear. <laughs> You're unwelcome as can be. <laughs> What's happening? Uh, I'm about to sip some of the vine, the vine, the vine, the vino. You're partaking of the vine. I'm going to uh, break out the, the name of the wine early here because sometimes we forget. This is Screwcap Screw Madness. Madness. More screw cap madness? Yep, it's uh, Australian screw cap madness. It's the Wishing Tree 2004 Shiraz. It's a Shiraz? Um, this is odd. On here it says Western Australia 66%, South Australia 34%. So it's like a biracial wine. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's heavily skewed towards uh, Western Australia, though. I don't mm. know what that means. It must be the grapes they're pulling from. Or the slavery they're using to uh, employ to squash the grapes. Do they do it by foot still? I think they do in Australia. They're very primitive down there. They roll around in the grapes. They do. It's like a natural uh, sun-protecting thing, too. Well, they are all... It's peopled entirely with criminals. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. As everyone knows, Australia is peopled entirely by criminals. <laughs> well, it used to be. Once upon a time. It now was, they're it was all, a penal colony. Yes. Now they're all the relatives of former British criminals. Yeah. But this isn't bad. Descendants. This this uh, this wine here, this Shiraz, which is biracial in, in nature. And it's not too bad. Made manufactured by <laughs> slaves. It's, uh, he is our slave. <laughs> it's nice. <laughs> High five. <laughs> you know what? That never gets old. Every once in a while, you you just let it lie and not talk about yeah, it. Yeah, and then you bust out the the the, you the Borat, Borat, or Leg. Any of those characters, they're just downright hysterical. Bruno is my favorite, I think, among them all. <laughs> Bruno Makishu Schnell. Oh, uh, <laughs> forgot about that. So, anything uh, new in your life this past week? Um, other than. Uh, ridding yourself of Kraken. Still, yeah, it's it, it lingers, believe it or not. That was one uh, tough uh, virus. Yeah, I'm still coughing like mad. Yeah, clearing my throat <coughs> every once in a while. You heard me in the intro, cr- clearing mine. That's right. Anything else? Nothing For else? the intro? I don't know. What? what do I have anything intro-worthy? Um, I could talk about one of these things in the intro instead yeah, of me with one it. in the middle. Something really interesting, a friend of mine gave me this article. I, I don't know what magazine it came out of. Oh, yeah, apparently it's a magazine called The Week. And it was a little piece called A Virtuoso Ignored. And she gave this to me because she knows I love music. And I thought I'd share this with you. Joshua Bell, world-class violin genius. Apparently, uh, there was a study or something like a study sponsored by the Washington Post whereby they put Mr. Bell in some normal clothes, you know, blue jeans and a sweatshirt or something and a baseball hat, and he played violin for, I don't even know how much time. Did they say in that uh, YouTube piece was like an hour, 54 minutes or something? During uh, morning rush hour, like 8 a.m., they put him in a subway 
uh, Metro stop in Washington, D.C., and he played brilliantly, and he had his little Stradivarius case open, and he put a little seed money in there, you know, so people would hopefully put a little more money in there. Stradivarius case worth more than the subway station. <laughs> yeah, he was playing his $3.5 million Stradivarius, you know, nobody knew who he was. So the study was to see how many people would stop and take note. Uh, would genius triumph over morning coffee and rush hour? And I believe in the time that he played, they recorded 1,097 people passing by. And, you know, the number of people that actually stopped, even for a moment, could be counted on two hands. And I think at the end of the hour, he had $32. Uh, he had earned $32. And, and to me, this is amazing because it, it, for me, it raises a lot of questions. The first of which is, how could you be a music lover or someone who perhaps claims to like music and walk past this guy's playing? And John and I both heard it. They had a little YouTube video sampling a, a bit of his G brilliant playing. How can you walk past that and not recognize it for what it is? I mean, when I hear that guy's playing, it speaks to me. And the tone he coaxes out of that $3.5 million instrument is unbelievable. I mean, if I was lucky enough to walk into that subway stop, I would have quit work just to sit there for the hour and listen to him play. I mean, it was it was brilliant. I think what do you the think? experiment was flawed. <laughs> I don't know. Technorati put up a video called Technorati TV on YouTube uh, questioning the validity of the experiment, you know. And, it, well, it's not like this was, you know, a Ph.D. thesis and it was going to get published. It was just a quick little experiment, you know. But I still think it was flawed. And I think the problem was there wasn't enough expression in his playing. <laughs> That certainly wasn't the answer. I don't know. It, it was funny because uh, very few people stopped. He got like 32 bucks. Uh, but at the end of the, uh, how much was it? 43 minutes. He played for 43 minutes. At the end of the 43 minutes, a woman who had been watching him for seven or 10 minutes actually said, I've seen you play. And she totally knew who he was. Right. And uh, that was why it was flawed, because she totally tainted the sample group. She did. She tainted the sample group. The uh, The thing that I found interesting is that Bell, of course, is a genius. He was recognized as a prodigy at a very young age. He was pampered. He was sent to all the great schools. And he's used to having a captive audience, you know, that uh, applauds. They're strapped to their chairs. And he said one of the uh, most difficult things about watching the video after he performed this little experiment was having to endure the moments of silence when he ended when he wasn't getting applause, which as John and I were talking about this briefly before. I mean, you know, he's a very lucky man. Most people play to half-empty houses, empty coffee houses, don't make any money playing their music. He's lucky enough to, I'm sure he's a millionaire. I mean, he's one of the best classical musicians on the planet. You know, he has a recording contract. That he's playing to the, the biggest venues on the planet, the most prestigious venues on the planet. He kind of needs to, you know, and this isn't a criticism, but he should probably recalibrate his expectations. You know, he's he should recognize that he's one of the lucky ones who gets to do what he loves and make oodles of money doing it. Yeah, he's like George Bush one, not knowing what a, a grocery scanner was. Yeah, the laser scanner. Totally sheltered. I think I think that the experiment is totally flawed, too. Did I mention that? You and the dude from Technorati, the guy with uh, Tourette syndrome on that Technorati video piece. I think you're going to get uh, pulled off the air because you just made fun of Tourette syndrome, Rich. <laughs> well, I didn't call anyone nappy-headed. Well, he was a nappy-headed Tourette syndrome kind of guy. Actually, I'm looking at the picture of Bell, and he has a nappy head in this little <laughs> black and white picture uh, showing uh, several Metro riders walking by as he's shredding on the violin. Who's that hoe that's walking in front of him? <laughs> that's got to be from the... Uh, volleyball team or what, oh. what, what sport was it they played basketball i'm sorry john and i are, are making light of a very serious situation 
I'll make light of it anytime I want. Hey, did you hear about that Syracuse University student? I forgot to even bring this up uh, before. I heard of you, and you're a former Syracuse University student. I am, but this is a Syracuse University basketball player. She mm-hmm, mm-hmm, she mm-hmm. just gave birth to a child. Okay. The strange thing is, they do the math. Yeah. She played most of the season pregnant. Oh, well, yeah. I've I've... Occasionally you hear about things like that, you know, people, my sister-in-law from Seattle is a a nurse. She's in administration now, but for the first 20 years of her career, she spent them as a a delivery room nurse. And she told me when we were visiting them out in Seattle, you know, 15, whatever years ago, that a woman came in complaining about cramps and uh, it was a young woman, you know, a girl, 17, 18, 19, 16, I don't know, somewhere in the teens, the late teens. And they found out that the cramps were the fact that she was about to give birth. And right. my, my sister-in-law, Debbie, was absolutely amazed because if you looked at the girl, she just didn't look pregnant. You right. know, she fooled her mom and her family and all that for nine months. Now she's going to have a kid. Boy, what a surprise that is for the folks. Yeah, you go in thinking that you're going to need a shot or, uh, you know, get a, like a some prescription. Like Alka-Seltzer or something. <laughs> and you come home with another person. That's pretty cool. Or maybe more than another person, maybe two or three persons, actually. Well, if if someone's got multiple births or or multiple children in there, they're generally huge. You're generally. But, you know, yeah. there's probably exceptions to that. There's exceptions to every rule. There is, but I've never seen anyone with a, a multiple birth who didn't look like a house. <laughs> now, now, that's very unflattering. I, Listen, I, Screech, I think, that'll be enough out of you. Dude. <laughs> I think that, you know, the whole childbirth thing is the most amazing thing in the world. And I just think that the... the More than Twinkies? I, those are the most scientifically amazing things in the world. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, they, can, they can survive, I think, a direct hit from a nuclear blast. <laughs> but but I'm thinking that, you know, the woman's body... They're like body, the antidote to a nuclear blast. <laughs> that's right. There's you, no mushroom cloud you if build, you, you hit a Twinkie. You can build a wall, and I think alpha particles are completely reversed. <laughs> They become uh, beta particles. They does. They become hostess particles. <laughs> uh, but a, a woman's body is the most amazing thing in the world. It can I house another I human being. I won't disagree with that at all. And in lots of different ways, too. Yeah. And and I'm just thinking, it's just incredible. But yes, I have seen women with more than one child, just twins even. And you can't deny that there's like several people in there. Yeah, yeah no, that's true. You know, I was at the uh, Munson film last night, and I'll talk about that film later, but we were talking about an actor of some note, someone that I think you like, uh, a guy by the name of Malkovich. And it dawned <laughs> Malkovich, on me... Malkovich, Malkovich, Yeah, it dawned on me that Malkovich is a lot like that guy, the guy you were doing an impression of before. Oh, uh... Walk-in. Walk-in. Not not necessarily in their acting styles, but in the kind of roles they get. They tend to be a little sinister, you know, and they're a little bit, just a little bit wrong. Each one of those guys is just a little bit bent, and they tend to get similar roles. Yeah. I saw an interview with Walk-in, and... Let me hear a little Walk-in. I don't know. (laughs) I love that. That's great. Interview. (laughs) So I saw an interview with with Walk-in, and he, um... Someone was asking him, like, this deep question, like, how do you prepare for a role, thinking he's, like, this method actor. Um, and he says, I don't know. I just I just read it, and I uh, I just I – don't, I don't like to prepare too much. I don't like to read too, too many uh, pages ahead of time, and I just, uh, I just say the lines that are on the page. That's it. Well, that's the old uh, Sir Lawrence Olivier. You know, he wasn't a method guy. And he was working with somebody like Dustin Hoffman or something. What film did they do together? 
Um, Tootsie? <laughs> well, it was around that time. It was around that time, the late 70s Ishtar? to 80s. It, it could have been something like that. And he didn't mean this as an insult, but, you know, Hoffman and a lot of the guys of that generation and the current generation are all the method guys, so they got to, you know, to, to act cut, they stab themselves, you know. And <laughs> uh, Olivier went up to uh, Hoffman and said, why don't you just try acting? Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, get in and out of character because, you know, Olivier, not a method guy. Yeah, not unlike uh, De Niro, who, you know, in order to play Capone, he actually became a he house had to himself. Kill several people. And, and, you know, he started his own crime ring in Chicago. That's right. Yeah. That is what they call the method. <laughs> it's, a, it's a method. It's the uh, style of acting taught at the new school. That's right. They teach the method. Anyway, you want to play a tune and we'll talk about some more cool stuff? Yeah, I'll hit it. Let's, yeah, hit it.
I like that song. Ditto. Cheryl Engelhart. Hard to come by. Doesn't she have a race team? I think she does. And she's quarreling with her stepmom right now. <laughs> oh, that's Junior. Yeah, I know. Ang- Cheryl Engelhart Jr. That's right. It's Cheryl D. Engelhart, isn't it? That's right. I think so. Yeah, I no Cheryl that. B. Engel- I was perusing the uh, Podsafe Music Network, and I don't even know what led me to that song, but I clicked on it, and it was quirky, and I liked the piano part. I liked the strings. I believe it was Joshua Bell actually playing violin on that song. <laughs> no, it wasn't. No. <laughs> you never know. It could have been. Do you know for a fact it wasn't? No, it was some schlock who they picked up out of the subway. Actually, it sounded really good <laughs> with a Washington Nationals cap on. Ew. Washington Nationals, that's a team. Yeah. That's all, they, that's all they, I can say about them. They beat my, at least the Mets haven't lost seven in a row. That's all, that's all I can say about that. I'm not bringing up anything about uh, the team which shall not be named. <laughs> that it, that would be the It's Yan- a hard time being a Yankees fan yeah, these oh, days. he named it. So, uh, you seen any good movies lately? Or let me ask a more specific question. You seen any good Bond movies lately? Actually, I saw a, a very, very good Bond movie. In fact, really? I saw it. I thought it was a good movie. Pushy Galore. Aside. What? <laughs> I think aside from, uh, from you know, being a Bond flick, there's the whole Bond spectrum. And I think this is, a, this is probably the best Bond film I've seen. And he's probably the best Bond, actually. I think he's the best Bond. He's believable. He's, he's ripped, first of all. They showed him with no shirt on. He, he's athletic looking, so I believe he can pull off the things he's pulling off. You know, I, I look right. at Roger Moore and I think, this guy shouldn't even be driving a golf cart. I mean, what's his deal? <laughs> he should be maybe fixing a golf cart. Let alone killing Yafit Kodo. I mean, come on now. <laughs> right. Yeah, I thought this was, a, this was the movie called uh, Casino Royale, by the way. Which is the, uh, the first Ian Fleming novel, I believe. Right. In 1954 or something, he wrote it. And I like what they do with it. It's sort of like they're resetting the clock on Bond. They they actually totally, totally messed up the chronology right. because it's the first Bond film, and yet it's taking place in modern times, and they have Eminent, played by Judi Dench, who's been in the last five or six or whatever. Yeah, and they're showing Bond actually becoming Bond, becoming a double O. He wasn't a double O. Apparently, you have to kill two people to be a double O. So he just goes around and just randomly starts killing people. That's right. He goes on a murder spree. No, he... he, he well, it, he sort of does, actually, in the beginning of the film. <laughs> I don't th- Well, the first guy that they show him killing... That was a job. That was a job. That was a job. <laughs> it was nice. And it was, it was a job that he had to do, and it was something that just happened to fulfill the role of being his second kill. The uh, James Bond, by the way, number four double O agent in his country... Number four. Yeah. Anytime Borat talked about something having a, a ranking, it was number oh. four. It wasn't like number one. My sister, number four prostitute in country. I don't know. I just why number four? I don't know. I don't know. But he was a he was a he was just a regular old was it MI six agent? Just a, a regular agent, a regular killer. Yeah, and you believe that he was a a, a regular agent, probably ex military, the way that he was built. Yeah, most of those guys are. Yeah, and. The best part about the film, and I'm, I'm sure you have to agree because it's me saying this. <laughs> well, if you were right, I would agree with you. Yeah. And I think the best part about it is that he's just no nonsense. He doesn't go about, he doesn't have like monologues like a, some superhero. Witty banter before he kills yeah, you. Yeah. No witty banter. None of that stuff. There's no, you know, contraptions that he relies on. He's basically a tough guy who relies on one thing, his wits, his physicality, and the gun that he carries. Well, to, to coin, or not to coin, but to use a modern phrase that somebody else had coined, he's, he's hardcore. <laughs> he's old school, baby. He's gritty. Gritty. 
He's he, he's downright nasty. Yeah, he's mean and evil. He's actually, I mean, the word I used is he's almost like an assassin. You know, he's yeah. he's shows no remorse. He just, you know, the other bonds. There'd be a lot of witty banter, and then maybe if he did kill them, it would be in self defense. It was because they were trying to kill right. the bond. This guy just shoots you in mid sentence. Forget about <laughs> it. See you later. That's right. Some guy actually tried to have witty banter with him, but he cut it short. Yeah, he shot it short. Yep, and then the one guy who um, he the chased down. The one guy. The one guy he chased down in probably the best foot chase sequence I've ever seen in and my life. And probably the longest action sequence. That thing went about 15 minutes long. It was great. And it was in the beginning of the film, so if you catch this, you have to see it. Um, yeah, he catches this guy, and he offs him not because the guy was shooting at him or anything. He offed him so that he could get away. It was an amazing scene, actually. What yeah. he pulled off was, was pretty incredible. The foot chase scene that John is talking about is pretty incredible because this athlete slash actor is inventor of this new sport called free running. And this is a, a running. Basically, it's a chase sequence on foot. And Bond just chases him through a variety of buildings and over cranes and, and things like that. But to watch this guy move, the whole idea behind free running is to move over, under, and around objects as gracefully and athletically as you can. And it's not CGI. It's this no. guy pulling off this amazing athleticism. You need to see it just to see this guy perform. He's incredible. And in one piece of this chase, it's... To me, the most amazing thing, and there's some pretty spectacular things where he's jumping from crane to crane, but to me, the most amazing thing was when he's running through the construction site, and there's this tiny little opening, and he grabs something above the opening, and he sticks his feet through, and he slides through. Unbelievable. I was just shocked. He's amazingly graceful, and that's, yeah, that's... Typically, Bond films open with an action sequence at the very beginning. This film opened with... Bond performing a, a job at the beginning, then it went to an action sequence. You know how Bond films typically right, the right. teaser is a is a incredible sequence. They always classically have been. So this film is a little different. Um, it, it really takes the Bond character in a in a direction that we really haven't seen him in this sort of hardcore direction. And this guy's, you know, like you said, he's got the physicality to make it believable. Yeah, and and I think that as I was saying at the beginning of this sort of uh, half review type of thing. I think that not only is it a, a good Bond film, the best Bond film, for, in my opinion, I think it was a good film. I thought it was a good movie. I thought that it was paced well, and I think it was structured well. People complained, like you said, that there was some... Um, it was a little long. So it was long, or there were some lulls in it. But I think there was strategic lulls, because they were setting you up for something else near the end of the film. And I'm not going to give that away. But I thought it was, it was very effective. I, Good I miss, film to me. I miss the orbiting space laser. I mean, what's a Bond villain if he's not a caricature of like a Batman villain or something? You know? Yeah, and and the the white Persian cat, the guy that the villain is, you know, stroking as he's talking to Bond about how he's going to kill him over six weeks. Yeah, there's also a really interesting torture sequence in this film <laughs> that'll make every man in the world cringe when they see it. That's another part of the film that that shows just how tough he is because you know this isn't one film where. Bond is strapped to a slab, and there's a giant laser that's going to cut him in no, half. No, Mr. Bond, I want you to die. Yeah, it isn't like a giant no, I saw, you to die. like a Rube Goldberg type uh, contraption that's going to cause like a mouse to drop, and some eggs are going to fry, <laughs> and then he's going to kill Bond. No, this one's going to be the guy straps him to a wooden chair and well, starts torturing him. Yeah, and, and we're not going to say how because yeah. it's well, give it away. It's a wooden chair that had a wicker seat, and they cut the wicker out so you have access. To the underneath. <laughs> that's, that's it. Rent the film. <laughs> that's it. It's really good. We like it. John and I each give it a, the appropriate finger. 
I give it like um, four of the fingers of my right hand. I give it a digit, the pinky. <laughs> That's right. I give it an opposable thumb. <laughs> you have one of those? I have two of those, actually. I got four of them. Helps wow. me Helps me climb trees. You were in JAMA, weren't you? I was. It helps you with your free running. Yeah. And, you know, if you want to look up free running, it's a cool thing because it's to me, it's kind of like the foot equivalent to skateboarding in a city. You could you could pretty much say that because um, skateboarding to me in a, throughout the city, I think the, the object of that is to jump over stairwells and all sorts of obstacles. And free running is doing the same thing just without the board. Except free runners are athletes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> John rolls his eyes. All right. Did I mention the Yankees lost seven in a row? Um, and they're playing right now, so it might be eight. <laughs> well... Soon to be eight anyway. So this week, um, I got a bunch of email. <laughs> As people with email accounts are want to do. Yeah, and this is the kind of email that we all get and spam. And some of this email is, they're getting more and more creative to try to, to uh, get through the spam filters. So they throw yes. in a whole lot of random words. And sometimes it's not random words. It's like parts of sentences. It's like Vogon poetry. It's Almost exactly like Vogon poetry. And I thought... Group, I implore thee, thy micturations are to me like a lurgid bee. I forgot. I used to know that whole poem by heart, but... Something that you should never forget. But yeah, this is... You should be in agony right now, by the way. <laughs> I'm not strapped to a board. With peril-sensitive sunglasses. Um, so I'm, I'm thinking we should start a new segment on the show, which is Spam Beat Poetry. And we're going to have theme music for this in the future. I just have to compose it. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have been able the, to do that yet. The production quality of this segment is going to increase as time goes by. But I think that I'm getting these spams that are coming in the mail that I, I think that are, are just beautiful. It's almost like the machine is creating artwork to me. So I want to read some of this, just an excerpt, because I don't want to, um, I don't, I don't really want to do the whole thing because it'll probably make your ears bleed. That's right. You'll but I'm not screaming. You'll be bleeding from your eyes. Not unlike a Bond villain. So I'm going to start this probably halfway through here and uh, dig it, brother. Dig it. Dig it. <clears throat> I'm with you. Expedience, shrewdness, displaying, proceeding policy, judicious. Greek politicos, polls, city, pal, now. Key show spelled IPA adjective. <laughs> Don't laugh. This is serious. For nearby entries, action, dictionary, thesaurus, all reference. Etymology, manufacturer, politicus, citizen, state. Discreet, imprudent, indiscreet, tactless, based on random. I feel you, brother. We need, like, right on. <laughs> Solid. <laughs> tactless, based on random, house, copy, incorporated. The man. That is deep. Shrewdness. Displaying, proceeding, policy, ju judicious, English. <laughs> Search web results for policy, judicious, English, old French, Latin. I'm getting like the flavor now. Yeah. Shrewdness, displaying, proceeding, policy, judicious, English. Imprudent, indiscreet, tactless, based on random, house. <laughs> And that's it. That, yeah. As you mentioned, we need some bongos. It needs to be the coffee house vibe. Do do do. You know, we actually have the right look for it, though. You know, we sort of got the Maynard G. Krebs goatees going on. I'm you wearing know? the black turtleneck. I need the dashiki though to be really hip with it. You know. Well, yeah, that's a different kind. It's like the spoken word tour. 
Yeah, so this stuff is great. I'm I'm gonna keep it. I'm gonna save it. I'm gonna post this one because this is uh, this is to me high art. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that sequence, uh, <laughs> the production values of that sequence will definitely improve. Yes. You know, it, it's we should get like you know Jesse Jackson in here to read some of that, or some an orator, you know, somebody with the voice. Jesse Although, Jackson is a, is an odd orator because he has a speech impediment. Yeah, but. He, well, Theodore Geisel died, right? It was it 15 years ago or something? Oh, right. And he went on, Jesse Jackson I'm speaking about, he went on Saturday Night Live and read some uh, Dr. Seuss. It was the cat in the hat. Yeah, he read Dr. Doctor... no, it was Green Eggs and Ham. Yeah, he read Green Eggs and Ham in that Jesse Jackson way, and it was brilliant. It was genius. I will not eat them in the house. <laughs> he has found a way to actually take his odd, the weirdness of his speech and, and use it... Uh, in a in a to make his to make the point to be more powerful, you know. So that's kind of cool. Oh, he is a he is a, a powerful speaker. He totally is. Oh, speaking of um, I just wanted to mention this briefly. Al Gore was in town at Hamilton the other day, and he did Al Gore. Yeah, he did his uh slide his slideshow about the whole climate change thing. A couple friends of mine were there, and I've seen the film. Have you seen the film yet? Not yet. Well, put it in your queue. But he it basically is. he basically did that and had a few new photographs and a few new uh, slides to add. And uh, my friend said it was really good. They were really disappointed, though, because he didn't take questions in any real sense of the word. Apparently, they handed out some three-by-five cards, and you could write questions, and then people chose the questions, and then he was read the questions by you know, the president of Hamilton College or something. So people, from what I understand, weren't allowed to stand up and say, Mr. Gore, Mr. Gore, you know, anything like that, which kind of sucks. But nonetheless, important message, you know, definitely needs to get out there some more. Yeah, the questions are probably kept in a lockbox. <laughs> On Funkin' Wagnall's porch in a mayonnaise jar since 9 a.m. this morning. Sis, boom, bah. What the hell was that? That was what they used to do on Karnak. These questions have been in a hermetically sealed mayonnaise jar on Funkin' Wagnall's porch since 9 a.m. this morning. And then Ed McMahon would say, I'm backing up from the mic now. Ed McMahon would say, no one has seen the contents of these questions, but you, in your divine and mystical ways, will divine them. Anyway, that was the whole Karnak spiel that Ed McMahon used to do. Ah, wonderful. That was a great bit, too. It was. <laughs> I miss Johnny Carson. I thought he was the king of late night. We may have mentioned this once before, but the reason I liked Carson was because he put the guest before him. He would make himself look bad to make the guest look good. I think Leno's got a little bit of an ego and Letterman to some degree. You know, Carson would let a marmoset urinate on his head if it would get a laugh, and I've seen that happen. Well, the thing that that Carson has that um, Letterman and Leno don't have is... I think the ability to be classy as well as just hysterical with just maybe one word or a look. His monologues, people would, would he would say a joke that was horrible. He would turn it into a self-deprecation yeah. and turn it around and, and the audience would love him again. Yeah. Well, just yeah. one look. Carson was the bomb. Miss yeah. him. Anyway, you want to do another tune? Yeah. All right. Let's check it out.
was the sizzling sounds of the Sumo Sisters. That one was called Girls Do It Better. <laughs> and it was literally the Sumo Sisters. I wasn't kidding. No, it, that's definitely their name. It's sort of been a girl power show today. Rock on, girls. We got uh, Cheryl Engelhart Jr. Cheryl B. Engelhart Jr. Sumo Sisters. And, and talk of pregnant women. And, yeah, and talk of pregnant women. And James Bond, who's a womanizer, so that sort of fits in there, too. Yeah, there's a couple of women in that film. There are. And actually, well, I won't say it. Don't say it. It's not Halle Berry, so it's no good. Yeah. Whoop. Velcro. Sorry. It's amazing stuff. Silent Velcro. Necessary. Saw a film at Munson, and you actually have a little uh, input for this film, if I'm not mistaken, because you... Uh, I didn't see the film, but I know the story. You know the story, and, and some of the, John knows the story because some of the uh, people in this film ended up in Syracuse, and we're about five miles outside of Syracuse right now. A uh, documentary film called God Grew Tired of Us, colon, the story of the Lost Boys of Sudan. Apparently, uh, this isn't the story of, of the people who run around and they're vampires, and it's you know Corey not, Feldman, right? And, and different uh, Lost Boys. No, yeah, it's it's not uh, the son of the famous actor dude who's on Twenty Four or Thirty Six or whatever that show is called. Kiefer Sutherland. Yeah, no Kiefer Sutherland vampires in this one. Uh, this is about some Sudanese uh, boys who are now men. Apparently, uh, there was a war between the North and the South in the 80s, and the people of the North, who I think were Muslims, and the people of the South were a lot of Christians, uh, the people of the North pulled a, a little King Herod, and they wanted all of the young men of the South killed. So these people fled to uh, foreign countries, and they ended up in a UN refugee camp in uh, Kenya, I believe. And they lived there for, for many years because they couldn't go back to their country. And a variety of countries invited some of these people into their countries to become citizens and functioning members of society. And the U.S. was one of them. So I don't know the number of people that came from this camp to the United States. But, uh, you know, they came in groups of four or six and they repopulated them to many cities around the U.S. And this film, a great deal of it took place in Syracuse because four or six of these young men were relocated to Syracuse. Mm -hmm. So uh, a lot of the film takes place. You see them landing at the Syracuse airport and I'm like, I've been there. And you see them in Carousel Mall in the right. the, the concourse with the elevators, the wonk evaders. And mm -hmm. I'm like, I've been there. So it's really cool. And what I love about this film is that these people are basically from the bush. You know, they don't have hot and cold running water. They don't have electricity. So they come to the United States and they're thrust into this sort of technological society where we have everything at, you know, at, at our beck and call by pushing a button on a remote or something like that. We have remote controlled Doritos. We really do. And what I, I love about the film, though, is the juxtaposition between our cultures. You know, they show these people growing accustomed to the American culture over the course of years. I get the feeling this film took four or five years to make because they would say one year later, two years later, three years later, and things like that in terms of uh, chronology. And what saddens me is just how some of these people, uh, well, how do I want to put this? You know, our, I tend to have problems with American culture. It tends to be a little toxic and poisonous and, you know, people are after things and, an example that really uh, hit home for me was these guys were kind of walking around and pointing out that no one was speaking to them. You know, when I where I come from in my village, they would say you could walk up to someone's hut, house, whatever that you didn't know, and they would invite you in and they would, you know, just be social, generally social. 
That just wasn't happening here with these people. In fact, it wasn't happening to the point where some of these people had been walking around a neighborhood in uh, Pittsburgh, and some of the local people who own small businesses were threatened by them and actually called the police because these people were just walking around being people, trying to interact with society. And I was so appalled by that because it just struck me as being so racist. You know, there's no real good reason to right. to call the police because people are congregating together. Yeah, because you know you put too many people together and suddenly you have you have a movement, an, an uprising, <laughs> you have a revolution. Absolutely appalling and a very powerful film. Another thing that absolutely, I mentioned this to John earlier, these people, you know, were repopulated to the United States and they were given jobs, basically assembly line type jobs. And they were kind of on their own at that point. They were given uh, housing and assistance for three months and then they were on their own, at which point they had to pay back the cost of the airline ticket to get them there. And I was just saying to my friends that I watched the film with and to John, just how appalled I was by that. I mean, like the United States can't afford an airline ticket, you know? Yeah. And it's probably, I said this earlier, it's probably one of those things that it would be great publicity. U.S. Air supports the lost boys of the Sudan, you know? Yeah. They give away a hundred free airline tickets. Like it's really going to hurt their bottom line, you know? Well, I mean, the company's bleeding millions of dollars anyways. What's it going <laughs> to well, hurt to have a few seats on their, the, on their plane? The airline, that may be true with the airlines or Expedia or, you know, William Shatner bought a few airline tickets. How about that, you know? Well, he, Gates, he could throw out, he could probably, you know, cough that money out of his cufflinks or something. <laughs> Last time I I know he coughed up some phlegm and there was a thousand dollar bill in there i mean he wipes his rear end with thousand dollar bills he could and he wouldn't notice any difference in microsoft's or his bottom line <laughs> bottom line get it <laughs> this is a pun anyway this was really an amazing film again as i've mentioned before love documentaries and this one will really help put your I don't want to say moral compass, your human compass in the right direction. You guys really need to see this film. It's a 2007 film, a U.S. film, 89 minutes, uh, rated PG, uh, directed by Christopher Dillon. I'm sorry, Christopher Dillon Quinn and Tommy Walker, and narrated by the crazy... Christopher Walken? No, narrated by the crazy short actor's (laughs) ex-wife. Rhea Perlman? (laughs) <laughs> that is a good guess but he's not so crazy I'm talking about the cruise meister Katie Holmes no ex-wife Mimi Rogers uh, after Mimi the Nicole Austra- Kidman yes narrated by man, Nicole man after Kidman. 17 guesses I get it right yeah suddenly John screams out Bob Blockles <laughs> Rhea Perlman was a perfect guess well, yeah but except Danny DeVito's not crazy he's just short oh you didn't see One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest I did see One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest but that's a character in real life Danny DeVito's just a good guy he's a method actor he actually went crazy so he could play that role I have a friend who says that all Italian men start out looking like Billy Joel and end up looking like Danny DeVito do you have any comments on that? Do I, did I ever look like uh, Billy Joel? Well, you know what I'm saying, though. They become shorter and wider and balder, and suddenly Billy Joel becomes Danny DeVito. And the great irony about this is even Billy Joel, who is the beginning guy in this sequence that my friend describes, is starting to look like Danny DeVito. So it's, it's even true of him. <laughs> well, I, I think that that's one strain of Italian person, I guess. <laughs> Not mine. <laughs> I think it might be. Anyway, I think that's a show. What do you think, man? I guess it's a show. John's over here. I don't know if he's having acid reflux or if he's just laughing really, really. <coughs> okay, he had to cough. No, I'm I'm having uh, 
pulmonary issues. John was about to give birth to aliens. I still might. This outro is hurting me. <laughs> anyway, check us out on the web, www.bloodyveg.com. Send me any of your home remedies for persistent cough or lung cancer. <laughs> yes. And wh- where are they going to send that? Uh, they can send that to feedback at bloodyveg.com. Check out the forum, which John probably wouldn't remember the URL to, www.bloodyveg.com slash forum. There's a link to it on our homepage. And Is you it? know, I just want to announce out loud that I, I want to have Kirsten on the show in the future. Did she hear that? Anyway. I haven't heard back from her yet. Remember, you're listening to The Vib, the V-I-B.